Well, thanks, DJ, for that warm welcome, and uh, it's good to be with you guys. Um, I'm glad to be able to be here with you today and uh, to be able to talk with you and think with you about uh, this important topic. So, uh, yeah, my name is Colin Mattoon, and uh, I'm the senior pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Kent, and uh, I'm glad to be there. I'm thankful for uh, my people, and uh, there's a lot of good things about my church that I'm really thankful for. I've been the pastor there for a year and a half. Uh, before that, I was an associate pastor in um, Cleveland, which is probably why DJ has that number. So I've been in the Cleveland area for three and a half years. Um, so when I was at the uh, church plant, I was bivocational. I worked as a hospice chaplain uh, as well. I've been a hospice chaplain and a hospital chaplain. I worked for the Norton system here and down at university for uh, a little while as well. Um, I think I hold the unique distinction of being the only Southern Baptist to do ministry in Louisville who didn't go to Southern, so that's my, that's my distinction there. I went to Western Seminary out in Portland, that's where I met my wife, and uh, yeah, so I'm married to my wonderful wife, Mary, we've been married for about 10 years, you can throw that slide up there. Uh, so that's Marianne, and that's our little guy, Davis, he's uh, just about to turn two, and uh, he likes pointing at things. Uh, and in case, uh, when he was first born, he had red hair. And so I was like, Marion, what have you been up to? Uh, but th- in case you're wondering if he really is my son, you can look at this next slide. And uh, I'm the one on the right. So, yeah, yeah, he's mine. But uh, he's a he's a cutie. We're uh, we're having a little girl at Easter. I'm really excited about that. I love being a dad. It's great. Um, but yeah. So how many of you guys are currently pastoring? All right. And how many of you guys are uh, seminary students? All right. How many of you are lay people in the church? All right. Well, uh, I'm glad you're here today. I'm hopeful this will be helpful to all of you, no matter where you're you're at in your journey. Um, I've been assigned the fun topic of suffering. So, you know, whenever I think about suffering, I think about D.A. Carson's line that if you live long enough, you will suffer. Uh, I remember when I was at Western, he came and spoke, and that's how he opened his talk uh, on suffering. And, uh, you know, he, he writes very clearly about the fact that uh, either you have suffered, you are suffering, or you're soon going to suffer. And that's true in life, that's true in ministry. Um, he was uh, speaking to a group of pastors, and I was a, a seminary student at that time, and I, I didn't realize that I was about to enter into a pretty uh, rough season of suffering, as my wife was about to get sick with autoimmune liver disease, which I'll talk about in a minute. But, uh, you know, when we think about suffering, like, none of us like suffering. None of us want to suffer. Nobody signs up on the sign-up sheet for suffering, Right? But one of the remarkable things about suffering is how God uses it to shape us. And we need to think about that up front because suffering is not this thing that is unredemptive. No, suffering has a purpose. And if you look back in your life, you can see how you've been shaped in, uh, by suffering and how you've grown through suffering. And when I look back, I'm amazed at how God has used suffering in my life to shape me. Right? He used suffering to convert me. So I grew up outside Portland, Oregon. Um, I was ready to go to University of Oregon, be a duck, and got to the end of high school. My parents divorced, 
And I was getting ready to leave, but my mom and my sister were having a really rough time, so I decided I was going to stay home, go to community college, help them out. That went great until all my friends left to go to college, and then I ended up in the spot where I was depressed. Now, at this point, I'm not a believer. Uh, I'm sitting back, and I believe that God exists, and life is not going well. So I thought to myself, well, I guess when life's not going good, that's when you're supposed to turn to God, right? So uh, there's this church down the street from my house, and I decided I'm going to go to church and, you know, see if God can help with this. So this church down the street, I didn't know anybody there. Nobody there knew me that I knew. Nobody knew I was coming, but I just started praying this prayer all week long. And uh, I decided to go on Sunday morning, go sit down. It's a Pentecostal church. Everybody's up speaking in tongues. It freaked me out. I almost walked out. But I decided to stay. And the entire sermon was about exactly what I prayed about. I left and I walked home that day and I was like, that was weird. I guess that could be chance or that could be God. Let's try it again. Let's see what happens. So I did. Nobody there knew I was praying, but second week, pray this really specific prayer. Go in. They're speaking in tongues. Freaks me out. And the entire sermon was about what I prayed about again. And that happened for six weeks in a row where I'd pray and didn't tell anybody about it, but the sermon was about exactly what I prayed about. Now that last week, I was like, all right, God, I know you're real, so what do you want from me? And the whole thing was about ministry and preaching and evangelism. It was called a ministry, which was weird because I hadn't heard the gospel yet, and I wasn't a believer. And I, was, I had a demonic kind of faith. I believed that God was real, and I believed Jesus was God, and that was about it. I didn't love God, wasn't following him, and I wasn't ready to. So I heard that call to ministry, freaked me out, and I just ran from God for about three years. So I moved to D.C., I get really into politics, professionally, life is fantastic because I got hired by the most famous professor on campus because he was from Oregon. He took me under his wing, which means I had a free master's lined up. His right-hand guy was President Clinton's chief lobbyist, so I had every connection I could have hoped for and could have had all kinds of great jobs. And so I had all these things going on that were, that were fantastic, professionally speaking, but I was just miserable. God didn't let any of it satisfy me. And so he used that and some other things to draw me back to himself. And uh, I realized that I just needed to seek God. So a couple weeks later, I'm going to this liberal United Methodist We Don't Believe the Bible College Fellowship that takes me to see the passion of the Christ. And that was it, man. That, that, was, that was where like, I got saved. I, I saw what Jesus did. I knew enough to be able to put the gospel message together. I was regenerated, went home that night, decided I was going to follow, prayed the prayer, um, and been following the Lord since then. So when I look back at my life story, my testimony, my testimony is about how God uses suffering to convert people. Uh, when I look back through my Christian life since I've been a believer and see what shaped me most, it's suffering. It's those times of suffering. So, I mean, some of you were there at Crossing. You remember what it was like when Miriam was really sick. She got an autoimmune liver disease. Uh, her whole family's cursed with autoimmune disease, but she ended up with an autoimmune liver disease, and we were seeing the best liver doctor in Kentucky, um, the super specialist, who when the normal specialist can't figure it out, they refer you to this guy. So he's like on NPR doing stories about studies and all this stuff. I mean, he's a big deal. And we would go see this guy, and he couldn't help. And so there were many days where, you know, we just wondered, like, is she going to get better? Is she going to die? What's going to happen? 
And when you're in that limbo stage, you know, you, you wonder about everything in life. So there were a lot of times we wondered, like, are we ever going to have kids? Are we ever going to get to do ministry or buy a house or have any kind of normal life? Um, in that period, there was uh, a three-year period, there was a time, uh, I think it was April of 2013, when the doc called and said that she needed to go to the hospital because her white blood count was low and her bilirubin was off the charts, and so she got admitted, and she was in there for 11 days down at Jewish. And uh, they did every test imaginable. It was like living in a house episode, if you remember that old show with you, Lori. Um, and at the end of it, they came in and they said, she didn't have the disease that she was diagnosed with. She had this other thing. And what that meant was that all the drugs she'd been on for those three years didn't help at all. They might have made it worse. They, the thousands and thousands of dollars we've been spending on meds were pointless. And the high-dose steroids that she'd been on for years that caused three years of insomnia, 80 pounds of water weight gain, caused you to be on an emotional roller coaster where it's like your emotions and your thoughts are completely disconnected for three years. All of that was pointless. And they said what she did have was this super rare disease called vanishing bile duct syndrome, which is real, I promise. I didn't make it up. Uh, it's extremely rare. It's like four or five cases in 25 years is what this super specialist guy had seen. So they really can't answer any questions that you have about it. And the only thing they can do is give you a liver transplant. So they put her on the list. And then in November 12, 2013, 11, 12, 13, she had her liver transplant. Since then, she's been doing great. Her health's been good. There have been no other major medical issues. Uh, we had our son, Davis, who we named after Dr. Davis, her transplant surgeon. And uh, we're having our daughter in six weeks. So we're really thankful and we're really blessed. But there were a lot of really dark days. And that time of suffering uh, was really difficult. Now, despite it being difficult and despite those being dark days, we can both say we're thankful for that experience. We're thankful for that suffering that God brought into our lives. It really was a blessing because um, God used it to shape us and grow us, and we know that was his loving and good plan to do that. Now, don't hear me wrong. It's not like I'm saying, I love suffering. I don't, you don't, right? But we do love the fruit from suffering. We like the maturity and growth it brings in our lives, right? That's true. And what's interesting is that while I can see how God's used suffering in my life, and while I'm thankful for the ways God's grown me through it, I could still say, I, like, I wouldn't want to sign up to go through that again or the first time or to suffer at all. That's true for all. None of us want to suffer. But we all know we're going to suffer. That's true in life, but that's true in ministry, too. And so I want us to think carefully today about three points. I want us to think about point one, which is we need to expect suffering. Point two, that we need to prepare for suffering. And point three, which is we need to endure suffering. So point one, expect suffering. How many of you guys expect to suffer in ministry? All of you, right? None of you have your hands up. All of you should. Internally, I know you do, right? You know you're going to suffer. I don't think that's news to you. I think all of you expect that you're going to suffer in ministry. And you know that because the Bible promises that, right? Uh, Jesus promises in this life you will have trouble. That's the least favorite promise in the Bible, right? 
but if you look, just think about the storyline. You know, you think about Moses. He suffered. You think about all the prophets. They suffer. They die. You look at King David. You look at King Josiah, the other good kings. They suffer. You look in the New Testament. Everybody suffers all the time. Now, let's just look through some passages together because I, I, I do want us to, to see this from the text. So Matthew 16 says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus had to suffer at the hands of the Jews by going to the cross. In a very real way, Jesus' ministry was suffering. And when Peter insisted that Jesus shouldn't suffer and die, what happened? Jesus rebukes Peter, calling him Satan. Why does he do that? Well, you guys are going through Matthew, you know, right? Because this is what Satan tempted Jesus to do in the temptation account in Matthew 4. Satan offers to make Jesus king if he would just worship him. And what is going on there is that Satan is offering kingship to Jesus without suffering, without the cross. He said, you can be king without having to go through any of this. And Jesus rebukes Peter just as he had to rebuke Satan. He rebukes Peter in the notion that being the messianic king doesn't have to include suffering. No, no, no. Jesus will suffer. And eventually, Peter gets it, right? And we get to Acts 5, and we read this. They took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So in the verses before this, just so we have context, the apostles are arrested, and the Pharisees are enraged, and they want to kill him. And one of the Pharisees named Gamaliel addresses the group, right? He says, hey, don't mess with these guys, because either it's just the work of men, and it's going to fizzle out, or it's going to be from God, and you're not going to be able to defeat them, and you don't really want to be opposing God. So the assembly, they take Gamaliel's advice, right? And they only beat the apostles and tell them to stop preaching, And here we see it's not just Jesus who suffers. It's the apostles who suffer for sharing the gospel and doing ministry. And how do they respond? They rejoice that they are worthy to suffer and be dishonored. They endured suffering, but they didn't just endure it. They rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer. And they continued to do their ministry. And it wasn't just Peter, and it wasn't just the apostles who would suffer, right? Acts 9. Acts 9 shows us this. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, 
For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So here we see God calls Ananias to go to Saul, the Christian hunter, because he's going to become Paul the Apostle. Saul's been attacking Christians. He's been causing them to suffer. The Lord saves Paul and calls him to ministry and declares Paul is going to be his chosen instrument to do ministry. And what's the main descriptor that God uses for Paul's ministry here? He's going to go preach to the Gentiles and the kings in Israel. But what's the other descriptor? He's going to suffer. It's suffering. But it wasn't just Jesus, and it wasn't just Peter and the apostles and Paul who would suffer. Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The church needs to stand firm. This is the church of Philippi. They need to stand firm and live a life worthy of the gospel, and they need to do this not being frightened by their opponents. Why? Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that you should have your best life now. No. It's been granted that you would believe and suffer for Jesus' sake, engaged in the same conflict that Paul's had, that we just read about. God has chosen this church and every church to be engaged in the work of the Great Commission and in suffering as they do the work of the Great Commission. But it's not just Jesus, and it's not just the apostles, and Peter, and Paul, and the churches that suffer. It's all ministers who suffer too. 2 Timothy. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of our, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus." who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul tells his son in the faith, his protege, his pastoral apprentice, Timothy, some pretty hard truths here. He says, don't be ashamed of the gospel, but do share in suffering for the gospel. Being a pastor, a minister, a missionary involves suffering for the gospel. And don't miss this. We share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
That's important. We'll come back to that. Then in verse 12, he says very clearly, I suffer because I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. He suffers because he is a minister. Now, I read all these passages to remind you, you're going to suffer. You need to expect to suffer in ministry. Being a pastor or a minister who suffers makes you normal, not unique. It's part of the job description. And it always has been. You think of any kind of leader and minister in the Bible, and they suffer. Right? Jonah, who's a little unique, I get it, but he yearns for death. Jeremiah, known for his weeping. Elijah, ask God to kill him after he does a miracle. All of us would be amazed to see. Paul's abandoned, he's shipwrecked, and everyone in Asia turns away from him. Everyone. And we follow a Savior, Jesus, who was killed, tortured, and forsaken by God. Here's the deal. We all say that we expect suffering, but all of us probably underestimate how much we will have to suffer. I, I, I mean, some of you may not, but I, my guess is almost all of us underestimate just how much we're going to have to suffer. The Bible teaches us that we will suffer. Church history teaches us we will suffer too. And it's important that we think about the men who came before us. You know, Spurgeon's the most successful megachurch pastor of his day. He battles intense depression that completely sidelined him at times. Or physically, he was incapable of being able to just stand and preach at times. Martin Luther was so depressed about the lack of gospel progress in Wittenberg, he gave up preaching completely for 15 months. Just refused to preach. Adoniram Judson saw no converts, none, in his ministry in Burma, and then his wife died, and how does he respond? The dude digs his own grave and stares into it for hours and says, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. David Brainerd, the missionary to the Native Americans, wrote that he was so overwhelmed with dejection that he longed for death exceedingly. Those are our heroes. Those are the ones that we look back to and have books about and read and the Piper preaches conference messages on. Those are the guys that we look to as great examples of pastoral ministry, of missionary ministry, of faithful service to God. And there are so many more stories like that, friends. I think all of us underestimate the suffering that we are going to have to face. I sure did. I knew that I would suffer in ministry. I knew that as an intellectual fact. I thought I was prepared for suffering after what I'd gone through with Marianne. But the truth is, I wasn't prepared, and I had no idea what I was in for. I had no idea the intense suffering that I would face as a pastor. And if you study history, you study military battles, you know what you find, right? Don't fight wars on multiple fronts. Well, good luck, because as a church planner or an established church pastor or a revitalizer or a replanner, that's like all the time what you face. All right, when I came to my church, to Grace Baptist Church, I was really excited about my first senior pastorate. The people had called me. Tons of them were happy that I was there. They warmly welcomed me. It was great. I had a pastoral honeymoon, right? 
But it didn't take long for the spiritual battle to begin. And it started with the the great Mattoon appliance crisis of 2018. Now, I know it sounds funny, right? But Satan brought an immense attack against us through our home and through our appliances. Because I tell you, every week for, I think, 12 weeks straight, something broke. Our microwave, our oven, our garage door, our septic system, on and on and on. That sounds funny, but man, that that gets stressful. You're talking about major expenses. You're talking about the fact you've always got to try and fix something in your house while you're trying to do all the work of pastoral ministry and be a dad and be a husband and all the rest. And while that was difficult in its own, you know, it was compounded by financial stress, right? Because when my church made me the job offer... It, it wasn't a pay package, it's just a, a one-line item, right? So and the line was pretty generous, it seemed good, but the truth is that having to pay for all of my benefits, I wasn't making enough to be able to support my family. So Marianne's working, and you know, next week I get to start my second job, my side job, uh, working as a hospice chaplain just so I can make ends meet while my church has a $450,000 budget. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with being bivocational. Not at all. DJ talked about it. I've been bivocational in the past. But I want you to understand, you will probably face some financial stress and some financial suffering in ministry. I'm guessing most of you know that and you've experienced that. But when you're in the middle of it, it's going to be different than what you expect now. It's going to be worse than you expect now. You probably will have house stress, financial stress, and you will suffer in other ways too. My church is a 55-year-old church. It's about 200 to 225 people if everybody shows up. And we're a church in decline. Our average attendance has declined 15% in the last six years. We've had no baptisms in three years. We've had one adult conversion in three years. And here's part of what you will find when you become a pastor in an established church in decline. Or even just plateaued. People will want those statistics to change. They will, and they'll tell you that they want those statistics to change. But they will want those facts to change without the church having to change. Without them having to change, in most cases. And friends, that is going to lead to conflict. That is going to lead to difficult situations for you that involve suffering. Every church has a choice, change or die. Every church has that choice, whether they want to realize it or not. And that reality is going to lead you into conflict and criticism and suffering. Faithful pastoring requires shepherds to lean into those problems and to put themselves into situations which will cause them pain and will bring conflict. And so those are problems that my church has to deal with, right? Because either we've got to change and fix those things, or eventually they're going to kill the church. There's other issues that I found, too. Our church has deep division and disunity. That was there before I got there. And when I showed up as the new guy, you can basically imagine the situation as I'm a can of gasoline that got thrown onto this fire in the corner. And that's what you will be, too, if you go into a church with problems and you seek to address those problems. You are going to instigate and inflame situations that are already there. That's part of what's going to happen. One of the other issues in my church is that there's not agreement about our polity, our governance, about 
how the church is going to be governed and who makes decisions and how those decisions get made. And there's a lot of disagreement and there's a lot of different expectations by a lot of different people about how things should be done. And the church knew that those were issues before I came. But what you'll find is there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of suffering involved if you want to try and help the church work through problems, not just avoid them. And what I found is that, you know, I thought I had a good understanding of what the issues were and what the problems were before I went. And I found there are a bunch of problems and a bunch of situations that I didn't know about. Some things that weren't accurately described and some things uh, are there in the church that I didn't expect and didn't agree to. And you're going to find that too. If you become a pastor of an established church, you're going to find that you have most of those situations and most of those experiences. Now listen, I'm, I'm thankful for my church. I don't want to sound like I'm just, you know, kicking it while it's down, right? I love my church, but that's the reality, and that's the reality that a lot of pastors will find when they go into established churches. You too may suffer, and you probably will suffer, as you go into a church that you're excited to be the pastor or minister of, and you're going to find it's different than it's advertised, different than you hoped. And some of those ways are going to be extremely painful. Some of the ways that it's different are going to be extremely painful and involve a lot of suffering that you really can't comprehend right now. You're going to face attacks, criticism, slander, opposition. You're going to have people hate your guts. You're going to have some people don't like you and don't want any relationship with you and they don't want it from the first step you take in the door for reasons you don't even understand that really aren't about you. You'd have people tell you that you are destroying their church, that you're a hypocrite, that you're evil. You're going to have people who are going to gossip about you and spread lies about you, and you're going to have people who want to get you fired, and you're going to have people who want to get you fired for absolutely ridiculous reasons. You're going to have people attack you and your decisions, even though they don't have all the facts, and they don't know why you decided to do the thing that you decided to do. And you'll have many people in your church that probably think they know how to run things better than you do. You'll have some of those folks who do those things who are immature believers, and you'll have some people who do some of those things who are called the mature believers in the church. I know, because all of that's happened to me. And all of that has happened to a lot of my good friends who have pastored in other churches. And I'm not unique, they're not unique, and when you experience it, you're not unique. You may suffer from all these things, but you may suffer in other ways too, like when they go after your kids or your spouse. You may face attacks from when the people that you expect to be in your corner betray you and you find knives in your back because they've sided with your critics. And if that weren't enough, you're going to continue to suffer in all the ways you normally suffer right now in normal life. Your family, your marriage, your kids, your in-laws, all that normal life stress and all the suffering you go through in normal life, it's not going to go away. It continues. And when we think about facing all of those challenges simultaneously and the joy that that is, it's not surprising why so many guys walk away from ministry within the first five years, right? It's not surprising why so many pastors are depressed and why we've read, you know, a lot 
of stories of guys committing suicide in the last couple years even. You may expect suffering, but I can almost guarantee you're underestimating how much you're going to suffer. But what do we do about it? Oh, point two. Point two is that we prepare for suffering. Now, this is like my practical advice section, okay? So this is a lot of shotgun thoughts. It's not all that linear. Just stick with me, okay? Uh, I do want to encourage you to seek to prepare yourself to suffer. Now, some of you guys are in the middle of ministry, and you're in the middle of suffering, so I feel for you. We'll get to you in a minute. But for those of you guys who aren't in it yet, but you aspire to ministry, here's what I would recommend to you. You want to find some practical way to try and prepare yourself. So some things you need to do. You need to try and be growing in self-awareness right now. Uh, Where are you weak? Where are you strong? Where do you need to grow? You need to understand your own heart, your own personality. What makes you tick is you. What makes you feel like a failure or a success? What makes you feel awesome or terrible? What bugs you? What discourages you? What encourages you? You want to grow in your knowledge of yourself and in how to preach the gospel to yourself in those areas, in those realities. Another thing I really want to encourage you to do, though, is to grow in your ability to handle difficult ministry situations now. You can grow in emotional intelligence and you can grow in your ability to handle difficult people situations now, even before you're a pastor. You want to do that now because you're going to face it later. So put yourself in situations now intentionally where you are going to suffer and struggle in ministry with a good pastoral mentor. Maybe in your church, maybe not. Maybe it's just somebody here in Louisville that you can draw on. But start building relationships with mentors now and learn as much as you can from them now. If you're a student, don't look for the church that's hip and cool and meets your preferences. Right? Go to a church that has problems. Go to a church where there is struggling and learn how to deal with those situations and challenges now. One specific challenge, no matter where you are, try and find one or two people that you don't want to be friends with and that you don't like and build a relationship with them and start ministering to them. You pick some people that are difficult and you start trying to pour into them, it's going to grow you in this way. It's going to grow you as a minister. If you want to learn how to pastor through suffering, it's best not to wait until you're out there in your first job and try to figure it all out, right? Wise people try to avoid pain and suffering by learning from the mistakes of others. We want to learn from the wisdom of others. So put yourself around challenging church situations and people situations now. And maybe you aren't necessarily in that church even, right? But there's a lot of churches and a lot of people in this town that you can network with. So go talk to them and hear about what they're going through. Try and learn from their case studies. Another thing I would encourage you to do that's crucial for you, you know this when I say this, but I'm just going to emphasize this as much as I can. You need to seek the Lord now. You need to get as strong of a devotional life going now as you can before you go out there and in the middle of a spiritual battlefield. The best soldiers get ready for the fight long before they get in it. 
They train long before the battle begins. You need to build as strong of a prayer life as you can now. So I want to challenge you. Start praying for your church now like you were the pastor. Get a membership directory and start praying for everybody in your church by name and doing that monthly or weekly or every two months, depends on the size of your church, but as much as you can. Start reading through the Bible, start memorizing it, and develop a system to do that. If you want to run the race with endurance, you've got to find your strength from the Lord as you suffer in ministry, which means your prayer life and your life in the Word need to be solid. So start meditating and memorizing on passages that will prepare you to suffer. Passages like Hebrews 12.3, which you'll see up here. Hebrews 12.3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Memorize and meditate on passages like Psalm 37, like all of 2 Timothy, like the passages about Jesus and the apostles' suffering, ones that we read before. I also want to encourage you, read good books by other pastors who've suffered in ministry. Read the dead guys like Spurgeon and Edwards and the missionaries I mentioned. Read guys who are alive like Andy Davis's Revitalized. That is gold. Uh, Reclaiming Glory by Mark Clifton. Anything by Mark Halleck. And those guys aren't necessarily all that popular, but man, they know what it's like to suffer in ministry and to serve church as well. Read stuff by biblical counselors like Paul Tripp or Nancy Guthrie or other folks like that who write on suffering. People like that. And I want to encourage you in the present, seek God's blessing as you suffer, right? When you suffer, because you know you're going to, and we all are going to, seek God in it and ask him to use that to mold you and shape you, to grow you, to cause you to be the man he wants you to be. Ask him to reveal your sins in it, because that's part of the thing we don't want to talk about. Part of our suffering is because we react to our suffering with sinfulness, None of us are unique. All of us will have a struggle with that. Ask God to reveal your sins, show you where you need to grow, and give you the strength to endure and to overcome. All right, point three. Point three is this, endure suffering. Paul tells Timothy to do this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which you'll see up here. 2 Timothy 4. Oh, all right, well, let me just read it. That's what you get for doing your slides late at night. <laughs> 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul charges Timothy here to preach, 
to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. And he's to do those things with patience and seeking to teach. And Paul also makes it clear, many won't listen to him as he does that, as he's teaching. They want false teaching. They aren't going to listen to him. What's Timothy supposed to do? What's he supposed to do when his teaching is rejected? Timothy is to be sober-minded, to endure suffering, and to devote himself to sharing the gospel and fulfilling his ministry. He's to be sober-minded. So he's to expect this kind of rejection and opposition and suffering. He's to endure suffering. Don't give up. Don't walk away. But endure. Why does he need to be told to do that? Because it's easy to not endure suffering. What's the first thing Paul tells him in 1 Timothy? Stay at Ephesus. Stay. Why? Because he wants to leave. Nobody likes to suffer. I'm telling you, you you need to remember that because a lot of times you're going to get into your first church or your second church or whatever church it is, and you're going to need to hear that admonition. Stay. Stay. Endure suffering. And he says endure suffering and persevere in sharing the gospel. He says do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do, and it's what we need to do as well. Good, God-glorifying, faithful ministry is not free from problems and suffering. That's why Timothy is told in 2 Timothy 2.24 to endure evil with patience. That's why Timothy is told in 2 Timothy 4.5 to endure suffering as part of his fulfilling his ministry. We should expect that we're going to have to endure evil and suffering too, right? Friends, you are going to be stretched and challenged beyond what you expect in all likelihood. You will hurt, you will suffer, you will feel pain beyond what you expect. You will doubt yourself and your abilities and your power beyond what you expect. You will be depressed and angry and resentful and anxious and want to quit more than you expect. What's your hope? Your hope when you are suffering more than you expected. When you're suffering so much that you just want to give up. You just want to walk away. Your hope is to look to the cross. Your hope is the gospel. The gospel is why you endure. The gospel is how you endure. And I didn't come up with that. He does. 2 Timothy 1.8, he says to share in suffering for the gospel by what? By what means? The power of God. Our Savior Jesus came and he lived a perfect life of righteousness that we could not live. He died on the cross to take the penalty that we deserved. He was buried and he rose from the grave three days later. He overcame suffering and death and has offered salvation to all people. He offers us forgiveness for our sins, but he offers us power. He offers us his righteous record. He offers us new life, a life indwelled by the Holy Spirit who enables us and empowers us to minister in the way that he calls us to minister as his agents in the world. God calls all of us to ministry. Some of us have the unique responsibility, burden, 
privilege of being pastors, all of us have the unique and great blessing of being a minister. But whatever office we're in, whatever gifts we have, whatever ministries we're called to, we don't do that in our own power. We do that through the power of the Spirit that we are given when we are saved by God himself. We minister in suffering by the power of God. And we are to endure suffering by this power of God as we are enabled and empowered to endure. And we see a lot of different things in these passages we looked looked at about how we are to do that. 2 Timothy 2.9, Paul tells us the word of God is not bound. It's living, it's active, it is working as we share it, even if we don't recognize that. Whether or not we perceive it, that's true. We're to endure suffering and endure everything for the sake of the elect. Paul did that, and that is our example to us. In 2 Timothy 2.11, he reminds us of the truth It enables us to endure, which is the truth of the gospel. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul remembers that the Lord will present him with great reward when he dies and is with the Lord. He looks forward to that reward to help endure in the present. In 2 Corinthians, what does he tell us? He despaired of life. He wanted to die. And what does he say? God gave him the grace that he needed to endure. God gave him the grace that he needed to get through every situation that he faced. God's grace was sufficient. Over and over again, as you study these passages about ministerial suffering, you will find they are all gospel-centered. They're gospel-centered. Because what got Paul and Timothy through those situations, what got Peter and the apostles through those situations, is the same thing that gets us through our situations of suffering today. The way we endure through suffering is to remember the greatness of God and his gospel and to find our power from him. So remember how Jesus suffered for you and believe that God enables and empowers you to be sustained and serve him through your suffering. God's word is still working through you as you minister, whether it seems like it or not, whether you see any fruit or not. God empowers you to do the work that he has called you to do through the gospel, through the spirit that is in you and is working through you now and forevermore. And friends, remember the hope of this gospel, that God will save his people and that we will live in his presence forever as his people adoring him and beholding him with such joy that we can't even imagine it right now. God will give you the grace you need to sustain you in the in-between, in the days of suffering that are now until you are in the days when suffering is no more. Now let me just speak to a minute, um, speak a minute to those of you who are ministering and you're in a season of suffering right now. And I don't know what that is, right? Some of you are church planners. Maybe it feels like the church isn't growing. Some of you are established church planners, and you could have all kinds of criticism and attacks coming your way. Maybe there's disunity in your church or conflict or tension. Maybe people are trying to fire you or there's divisiveness. I don't know. All of you are suffering in some way. But whatever your situation is, I want to encourage you just by asking you a couple questions. Can God be trusted in your suffering? 
Is God faithful in your suffering? Will he be faithful in this situation of suffering that you're facing, however it turns out? Is God still faithful? Is God good? Will he continue to act in goodness towards you at every moment of your life, regardless of how it turns out? Is God still good to the church, no matter how it turns out? Is God sovereign? Will God continue to rule over your life and his church and bring people to salvation and reign as Lord over it all? Friends, if God can be trusted, if he's faithful, if he's good, he's sovereign, which he is, and you know that, then hear what Peter says to you in 1 Peter 4. If it's in there. This is our calling. Let those who suffer according to God's will. And if you are in ministry suffering, friends, that is you. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You seek to do good, friends. You serve the Lord in whatever capacity he's called you. And entrust your souls and entrust your ministry to him. Entrust yourself, trust him with every detail in your life. I'm with you. I got a church that's full of problems and full of great things too. Right? I've got some issues. I got people actively working to get me fired right now. But we can trust God. We can entrust our souls, our bodies, our incomes, our homes, our children, and every other detail of our lives to our faithful God, to our good God, to our sovereign God. Trust in God. Don't be worried about evildoers. Delight in God. Commit your way to him. Trust him. Wait patiently and expectantly for him to act. Give up your anger and your wrath, (coughs) and the Lord will sustain you. Entrust yourself to the faithful God who will enable you, empower you, and give you the grace you need. And when you forget this, and you're in your low moment, when you're feeling the suffering, right? you're not going to remember what I say, but remember that go to Psalm 37. Go to Psalm 37 and dwell there. Because that is where this comes from. We're to trust in God. Don't be worried about evildoers. Delight in God. Commit your way to him. Trust him. Wait patiently. Give up your anger and your wrath. The Lord will sustain you. And trust yourself to the faithful God. He will sustain you in your suffering. Let's pray.